Scott, is that phone at your house? Corey, you see, my father believes that it's important to maintain a landline because if you don't have a landline, how will you receive phone calls about great offers on cleaning your ducks? <laughs> can you can you turn off the phone? Is there a ringer you can turn off? Sure, hold on. Thanks. Boop. Done. Uh, <laughs> I have to edit that shit out. It, with today's technology, they've got uh, troughs that'll, the leaves will just go right over top of them and the water goes in the troughs and you don't even have to touch those things. Brad, you're talking about gutters. I'm talking about the ductwork. Yeah, gutters in the are house. different. Oh, oh, I guess I'm talking about eaves troughs. No, nope, nope, still the wrong same. thing. You're wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> about gutters. What are you talking about? Eaves those trough. things that hang off your roof that collect the water and make it go down the downspout. It's called a gutter. That's an eaves trough. You ask anybody from the Midwest, that's an eaves trough. Is this like a duck, duck, gray goose thing or gray duck thing? Yeah, it's duck, 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 gray duck, 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 eaves drop. That's the game they play. Not eaves drop, eaves trough. I've had my fill of the Midwest at this point. Were you in the Midwest, John? Yeah, Fantasy Flight Games is actually based out of Minnesota. Oh, that's right. Got there and like one of the first things the coworker was like, so do you like ice fishing? And I'm like, I'm from Los Angeles. So of course. Let's go. And that was my first mistake because then I went ice fishing. You don't screw around with that. And if you don't have your own shanty, they're going to look askance at you. Askance? What the fuck, Brad? (laughs) Brad is making up words. He's speaking old English. Longest time, I will tell you, I thought eavesdropping was eavesdropping. And I thought it had to do with like hanging outside on the roof, listening to people talk inside the house. You know, that kind of (laughs) works. Yeah. Yeah. That's I was a logical kid. They're not called eaves troughs. They're called roof edge splish splash trenches. I like that too. I always call them sloppy doppy long cups. <laughs> that sounds a little bit shady. Honey, I told you you need to go out and clean the sloppy doppy long cups. Ah, my wife, my wife, she wanted me to go clean the sloppy doppy long cups. <laughs> My wife, I'll tell you. This went to a strange place. Yeah, you're in for this for the next hour or so, uh, John. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey, Corey. Yes, sir. Do you know a good sloppy doppy roof cup guy? <laughs> I knew this guy that he's been working on those since the 60s, but, you know, he was one of those tune-in dropout guys. He was a hippy-dippy sloppy doppy long cup guy. Oh. <laughs> All right, somebody, somebody start the jazz. <laughs> Jesus We should do introductions. Yeah. Well, then I'll start. Should, yeah. Or do you want to start? Brad, you start. No, you, you haven't started. You want me to start? Yeah, you didn't start. I don't think you've started yet. I Hello start. and welcome to Surviving Creativity with Corey Cassoni, Brad Geiger, and Sir Scott a lot. Wait, no, that's not your actual name. It can't be. <laughs> it is this show. <laughs> and our special guest, Jonathan Ying. Game designer extraordinaire. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm increasingly less happy to be here, but. <laughs> <laughs> Was it the sloppy doffy long cup? 
uh, it might have might have been part of it that. Yeah. yeah. It's where, and where are you at right now? You're you're back in L.A.? I, I live in San Diego now, actually. Oh, uh, oh great. Yep. Sunny San Diego. It's beautiful. I'm going to do a summation CV for our listeners. Uh, you're a tabletop game designer, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Probably best known for your time at Fantasy Flight Games, one of the biggest game publishers on the planet. You did uh, Battlelore. You did Star Wars Imperial Assault. That's you, right? Mm-hmm. Doomboard game. Uh, you did Game of Thrones trivia game. Uh, now you're independently published and you've designed your own game mm-hmm. called Bargain Quest, which is a great game, by the way. Oh, shucks. I no, it is. It's really good. The time that I was hanging out with you guys down at uh, the Table Titans booth at PAX Unplugged, I saw Bargain Quest. Like every time I turned around, I saw somebody with that game in their hands. I was I was uh, fascinated to find out what it was all about. Did you end up finding out? No, that was that was your lead in, John. You okay. got to jump in when you get a chance. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm talking about beekeepers before you know. It, so take your opportunity when they hand it to you. <laughs> All right, so uh, Bargain Quest is the latest game that I've done uh, via Kickstarter. It's illustrated by my sister, who's a former Disney visual development artist. Bargain Quest is a game of adventure and capitalism for up to six players. Uh, Players take the role of shopkeepers in an RPG town. Now, the problem with living in an RPG town is that monsters like to attack RPG towns. Luckily, where there are monsters, there are brave heroes who have come to fight them. These heroes have two problems, though. They have no weapons or armor. And they have just way too much money. And it's up to the players to uh, solve both of those problems for them. You sort of go through the game. You'll draft item cards into your hand. You'll set up your shop display windows to try and get the best hero into your shop, by which I mean the wealthiest hero into your shop. Uh, Sell them gear and uh, hope they don't die. But if they do, they can't ask for refunds. So. (laughs) Strict policy. I can tell you've done that a couple times at shows. It's a good pitch. I've played this game several times now. The thing that I really dig about it is the the balancing act of you want to make sure that the heroes are equipped enough to protect the town from these monsters because if the monsters come into town, sort of everybody loses something, right? Mm-hmm. But you also don't... So, so like you kind of want them to get the best items, but you also want to make the most money to win. So you're kind of like juggling... Do I, you know, what do I get into their hands to make sure that they can be equipped uh, versus that guy's a little too far ahead. Maybe I don't want to equip this hero right now. Maybe I want the monster to come in and kind of wreck the town a little bit, <laughs> take everybody down a notch back down it to would, my level. Because it would be good for business. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I was very impressed. I think it's a great it's a great uh, uh, first independently published game out the gate for you. Uh, but you. you've you've brought us uh, a topic this week. I have. It's a shiny new topic. So lay it on us. What you got? So uh, the thing I'm really interested in talking about today is adaption and adapting things from other media or other mediums into games or different media, right? In particular, there are all the stuff I worked on at Fantasy Flight. I also have a couple of other adapted works that are uh, in the pipeline right now, only one of which I can technically talk about. And you've done a, you've done a lot of this because yeah, this has been my claim to fame. It seems right. Star Wars Imperial Assault, huge game for Fantasy Flight, adapted obviously from the Star Wars franchise into a tabletop game. Uh, game of Thrones trivia game. Uh, the Doom was a video game turned into a board game. So this is kind of your this is your bread and butter. I've certainly lived in this house for a long time. 
uh, it's been quite it's been quite a ride. And like every company I've worked with has had a very different uh, way of operating, right? Like Star Wars was really interesting just because I joined the team just before the Disney merger was announced. Oh. I think like so we were working on the game for like maybe like three or four months and then it was announced that uh, Lucasfilm has been bought by Disney. And so all of our licensing agreements had to be like looked at over again and checked over. And we got to meet with the uh, lawyers from the mouse, which was exciting. And they do not screw around over there at I Disney, let me tell you that. I want to believe that they came into the room in three-piece suits, but they were all wearing those those Mickey ears that you get at the park. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that helps, uh, that you, you can go with that. But they were still quite frightening. <laughs> um, to talk, I mean, particularly because J.J. Abrams, you know, or as I affectionately referred to him, J. Jabrams, uh, who was an alumni of my college, actually. Oh. Yeah, he went to Sarah Lawrence College, same place I went to. Uh, but J.J. Abrams has a very particular uh, secrecy element to anything he's working on. And so they were extra cautious about letting anyone know about, like, Force Awakens stuff and you know, we did some like stuff that was uh, released alongside Force Awakens. There was the X-Wing miniatures game did a special Force Awakens pack. And so people who got to know about that were like kept aside in a separate room that had like its own locked server that was not on the network for them to work on. Jeez. It was nuts. It was very wow. like we basically took apart one of the meeting rooms and just turned it into a separate office with its own locks so that people could work on Force Awakens stuff in there. The, the people coming out of there were like, oh, yeah, no, like, please don't even ask me about it. Like, I they they have the paperwork in place to end my life. I just don't. <laughs> so I guess that's the first part of an adaptation. Wait, was that the game with the miniatures game that we played? Did you work on X-Wing as well, John, or you just worked on Imperial Assault? Uh, my So my main design credits are on Imperial Assault. Oh. I helped out on X-Wing. I did some testing and I also designed a couple ships, but like. Yeah, no, I'm, I was not officially in any capacity an X-Wing developer. A big thing at Fantasy Flight is that you very often get a bunch of the designers in the same room just testing each other's stuff out and we'll make suggestions. And so, like, I've got, like, content in things like Netrunner and X-Wing and, like, Armada and all these other things, but nothing, like, nothing enough for a real credit. Well, and that was kind of Fantasy Flight's claim to fame at the beginning was that they had all these designers on staff, which for a company was very weird, right, mm -hmm. at the time. And now it's sort of a normal thing. It's becoming more normal. Uh, it's certainly becoming it, – it's the landscape is really shifting a bunch right now, particularly as uh, Asmodee North America and Asmodee in general slowly like Katamari rolls up other companies and sort of is consolidating things. Different companies just have their own different cultures. Like right now I'm working on a project with IDW Games and they work almost entirely with freelancers and – that's pretty cool. It's a different, very different environment to uh, working like as a salaried employee at a company. But yeah, I don't know. It's uh, been a change of resources, certainly for me. I think the the first important thing that we've got to cover for our listeners is that there's a big difference between uh, an adaptation, a licensed adaptation, and a uh, it's it's parody. But what's isn't there another word for parody? I mean, there's also games like, you know, King of Tokyo, where it's like, it's yeah. not Godzilla, guys. It's not Godzilla. It's a big <laughs> right, dinosaur yeah. attacking Tokyo, fighting a gorilla who is not. Right. So, yeah. we're, so we're not talking about taking uh, 
a, a more generalized idea and sort of adapting it to your game. We're we're talking about r- true adaptation where you're taking one form of media and turning it into another form of media. In in this case, you know, like Star Wars or Doom, a movies and book series or a video game, and then turning it into a tabletop kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really challenging, honestly, because you have these very specific. Uh, ideas of the property that all the fans are going to bring with them. And they'll be upset if you don't include all of the things that they want you to include a lot of the time, or particularly they're uh, very upset if you don't get the feel right. Right. And that's hard because just board games are such a different animal to many, many other media, right? Game of Thrones in particular was super weird just because uh, for the trivia game, we were, that was licensed to HBO, not, like the, the Song oh, of Ice no. and Fire, George R. R. Martin stuff. Most of the other, you know, Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones products that FFG does is for George R. R. Martin. You know, we had the license before HBO did. Right. Which was kind of a windfall when the show came out. We were like, oh, snap. And then the uh, sales of the Game of Thrones board well, game went Well, then the up. trivia for the book is different than the trivia for the uh, for the show. It sure is. And we like sort of were like, so can we use... <laughs> Stuff from the books that you don't mention, they're like, no, only show content can be referenced, which led to like, oh, God, there is a lot less, you know, in the books, they're just full of like random bullshit, right? Fantastic little minutia of like, what are they eating? How far do they ride? All these like, because George R. R. Martin loves to put in that kind of, you know, that rich texture and detail. But the show yeah. is much less like that. And so when they do put it in, you we really have to look out for it. It has fundamentally changed the way I watch the show now. Because, like, every time someone is like, they've got a legion of 40,000 men, or it's like, I'll need 15 soldiers. Anytime they reference, like, a number or, like, a particular obscure idea, I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be a good one. <laughs> that'd be a good question. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard, right? Because there's only so much content that is in the show, and some stuff is completely contradictory. Like, how certain characters die or, like even uh, certain characters' titles. I mean, trivia games are just hard to design in general because the difficulty curve of trivia is weird because you either know it or you don't, generally. And so it's either an easy question or impossible. Right, yeah, there's no hint or anything like that. Exactly, you kind of, you sometimes have to just build them out like SATs where it's like, all right, how many soldiers did they bring? 20, 200, or 2,000 and make them dramatically different enough so that at least if they know the context, they might be able to make a educated guess. That's very interesting to me because it sounds like with an adaptation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've already got this difficulty, this this mechanical difficulty of designing a game. You have to figure out this game, you've got to design it. And uh, usually it, it seems like with other designers I've talked to, either you start with some sort of thematic thing and then you work into a design, or you start with some uh, mechanical thing and then you work into a theme. Now you've got, a theme, uh, a very strong theme that you want to work into some sort of mechanic, only the theme is going to be dictated to you by the owner of that thing. Mm-hmm. So you don't really have a choice a lot of times, right? The the Game of Thrones uh, game being a perfect example where they're like, no, you don't get to use the books. Thematically, mm-hmm. you have to use XYZ and then you've got to, you've got to design around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about the difficulty of you know, as a designer whose whole job is coming up with these interesting mechanics and making them match these ideas, now you're you've got this third party in the room that's not normally there. It's, it can sometimes even make things easier, actually, when you have those. Oh, really? Yeah, when you have these very strict limitations on what you can create, 
or what you can do with this property, it gives you a lot more focus where a lot of designers kind of freeze up when they're like, oh, you can make your game about anything. And there's all of these options. You know, you'll go down a lot of wrong options before you even get to the ones that you want. And sometimes you'll go down an option that is mechanically sound, but just clashes thematically. And with a licensed product with these very, you know, harsh strictures on like, here's what we're aiming at. Here's our target goal of how the game should feel. That can actually give you a much clearer roadmap. So like, for example, with Doom the board game, uh, which is an evolution of the same system that we built out in Star Wars Imperial Assault. I was tasked to do that. And they were like, all right, so we want to make a Doom board game. It's got to be different from Imperial Assault, but using the same engine. And I was like, oh, God, because Imperial Assault is evolved from the Descent engine. And while I was working on Imperial Assault with uh, the other designers, Corey and Justin, we sort of sat down and my main goal was just like, okay, let's make the version of Descent that I like with all the parts that I hate taken out. And so essentially, I had already made this ideal version of the system for with Imperial Assault. And then I had to like make it better for Doom. And I wasn't 100% sure I could do that, but I knew that I could make it more like Doom. And so a lot of my design decisions were like, okay, whatever it does, it has to be faster. It has to be more brutal, more aggressive. You're fighting swarms of demons and you're not pausing to think of the tactical implications of whatever. You're not creating the super elaborate plan. You are, you know, kicking down the door and busting some heads. And that is Doom, which is, you know, not the kind of adventure-y, swashbuckling Star Wars adventure. It's this you know, hardcore, aggressive. And so all the decisions in Doom were designed to reduce the downtime of player decision, which makes the game a little bit less tactically complex, but makes it faster and a little more exciting at the same time. So in the world of video games, usually when a when a new game is coming out, if it's an original IP, the chances of it being good are better than if it's an adaptation of a movie, especially the video games. Like normally when a movie comes out, there's going mm-hmm. to be a crappy video game that accompanies it, right? And I can't really yep. think there's there's been some exceptions, but for the most part, they're mostly always shit. They're mostly just kind of thrown together, probably to meet some goal or some date. And how do you approach an adaptation like that with all those limitations and deadlines and still make a really good game that people are going to want to play without it being just some kind of bullshit tie-in? thing cash grab type thing yeah and then i guess the second half of that question is when you're designing for an adaptation do you feel you have one hand tied behind your back because that's the conception people are going to look at it like well i can't be that good it's it's an adaptation of a of a thing yeah uh i mean certainly that second thing you were saying like uh adaptations will sell very well early on But I find that more often than not, they have very poor staying power. With the exception of certain properties like uh, Star Wars, uh, most IPs kind of have a shelf life where it's like it's no longer particularly hot. Like the second they come out with a new Doom game with a different aesthetic, like, you know, whatever, Doom 5 or Doom 2. I don't know. They did the franchise reboot where the name is just Doom again. Yeah. But the second they come out with a new one, uh, our product, which is licensed to the, you know, 2016 Doom, will look old because it is associated with this older game, right? Yeah, right, right. And so, like, that is a worry because then you can't, the product just can't be evergreen or it's very difficult to make it evergreen. Games like Battlestar Galactica have managed to work very well in that respect in that they, it has stuck around uh, long after the show has sort of stopped because it is such a strong game itself and like kind of gets that feeling so well. 
But in general, yeah, that that is it's a real challenge there. Uh, as far as like the kind of phoned in games, it's really true that a lot of uh, licensed games are not great. And many of them are made under very, very strict time limitations, uh, like for video games, right? We need a new Spider-Man game to coincide with the release of the new Spider-Man movie. Right. It needs to match the plot of the movie, usually, which means it's the plot is not built for a game. You also have this very small window to do it in. And it's often an even shorter window because these marketing dates get set way in advance. So a lot of these studios who usually want to take like three years on a game, five years on a game, are given like nine months and no budget. Oh, right. They've got to use old systems. Yes, they've, they've got, got to, to reuse content. They've got to just, you know, they, they cheat. And the fact that the game gets made at all is impressive, but, you know, it's never something, it's very rarely something that is really impressive. I find that the best adaptions or adaptations of licensed properties, they tend not to chase that specific thing. If we look at, say, the Batman Arkham games, those are pretty great overall. And those do a really good job because they're not trying to be the, you know, they're not trying to be the Nolan Batman. They're not trying right. to be the Bruce Tim Batman. They are trying to be kind of their own thing, drawing very heavily from the comics and from this huge swath of the comics, but being willing to do whatever they want to do with their story and with their setting, but just be trying to be as Batman as they can be, right? They want you to stealth around and like be, be a spooky, punchy guy. And they get that. And that is great. Yeah. And they introduced, they introduced kind of a new, uh, a new way of doing like video game combat. That was kind of oh hell yeah yeah that kind of yeah. counter based beat 'em up combat oh god I've yeah. killed a lot of hours doing I that I know me too it's interesting to note that Fantasy Flight Games actually has a really good track record of adaptations of other content mm-hmm. most of the games that I can think of that are that are adaptations from other stuff are actually really really solid I think the first one I played was almost 20 years ago, and that was the Lord of the Rings board game, which was, this is pre Mm -hmm. the movie. FFG had picked up the license to the books before the Peter Jackson stuff and had done a really amazing cooperative board game at a time when cooperative gaming wasn't really a thing. Like, I can't remember a cooperative game Mm -hmm. pre that. Um, The Battlestar Galactica game was a pretty good adaptation. The Game of Thrones uh, from the books, the Game of Thrones kind of war style board game, also a really good yeah. adaptation. Imperial Assault, obviously, like that's a great, that's actually a really great game. It does take Descent and it boils it down to this amazingly playable game with all of the cool shit. It's got the, like you said, it's got the feel. Mm-hmm. And that's of kind of it, one right? of the nice things about FFG's process really is that they philosophically very heavily emphasize gameplay first in their products. Even when, you know, whenever doing a licensed IP, whatever they do, they really want to do something interesting with it. But they also want to make something that the designers are excited to make. Very rarely, and occasionally we have uh, produced games that are kind of just like, hey, here is the license. Let's just put it on this. It's It'll be fine. But even then, like, it's we're, try- we're putting it on a game that we're excited about. Right, right. Like, you, we even have examples of things like XCOM, right, where it's nothing like the video game mechanically but it's designed to give you this kind of global defending the planet from aliens feel and to work in this kind of new technology of the app. I think as far as the people that FFG puts together, like the teams they make, it's always these very dedicated, very excited people crafting these games. And they give us a remarkable amount of creative freedom as far as design work goes. Uh, It is the most control I've ever had over any creative project 
that wasn't one that I made myself. You know, in Imperial Assault, it's like, okay, we want a tactical miniatures game set in the Star Wars universe. Go nuts. Like, we basically could make whatever decisions that we wanted, and then we'd clear them with Lucasfilm, and they were, with certain uh, very specific exceptions, they'd, like, give us a list of words that you're not allowed to use in Star Wars, which is really interesting. Like, uh, there's no such thing as an earthquake because there's no earth. They call them ground quakes. Oh, crazy. Oh, that's, uh, that's such an interesting note, but it makes perfect sense. There are no bathrooms. They're all refreshers. And But there's also, like, what doesn't appear in Star Wars. Like, there are no paper products in Star Wars. You never see anything made of paper. There are no right. shoelaces in Star Wars. We had a character's art piece come back and be like, hey, uh, change this character's boots because we don't... They, there are no shoelaces in Star Wars. And we're like, what? <laughs> but we had, we just, we altered the art because wow. yeah, they just, no one has laces. Everyone has like buckles and straps and all these things. God, there's, there's a team that that's their whole job there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. So once you design one of these games in order to get these notes, obviously somebody's going to have to look at this. Is there a team somewhere that is, playing this stuff as you design it or is it more like you have a finished product and then you send it to them and then they give you back notes how, how does that back and forth process go uh, it's different with every company honestly like you know lucasfilm is very hands-on with their ip they're very you know they don't want anything to really interrupt what they're what they're trying to tell like for example and this is something that gets more and more conspicuous as we produce more content but you are not allowed to like if you're doing a story in the empire you know in the sort of the Empire versus Rebellion era. You are not allowed to call any character who is not Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or Yoda a Jedi. They can have force powers, they can have a lightsaber, but they are not Jedi. They are force users or force sensitive or whatever, but they, yeah. you know, they just you cannot use that term for those characters. So like Force of Destiny, you know, a whole game about playing force users, we I mean, conspicuously don't refer to the players as Jedi ever. That sort of thing. They're very hands-on. They have like, we have weekly meetings where we go in and be like, okay, here's what we're making. Here are these characters. They're like, oh, uh, don't use Bothans because we haven't decided what we're doing with Bothans in the new Star Wars setting, right? Uh, so like Mach Eshkare, the Bothan character in Imperial Assault was the last Bothan character, that, as far as I know, that has been created for Star Wars until they decide what Bothans actually are. Oh, boy. Because if you look at the expanded universe, the like books decided Bothans were these weird kind of like lion people with like cat yeah. faces and kind of short and like yeah, very funny looking. But uh, since all that's been wiped, they can, they're just being like, okay, we're still deciding what Bothans are. Just don't make any new ones and don't, don't mention Bothans. <laughs> How much research did you have to do going into this? Like, did they send you, a, you know, a, a bucket of books and movies and stuff? Or was it really you guys were kind of turned loose to do to do research on your own? Uh, we have access to a couple of things. Um, we do a distressing amount of research via Wikipedia, the Star Wars wiki. Uh, but uh, Lucasfilm in particular, they give you they gave us access to a thing called the Holocron, which is their canon database which is an incredible thing. And, you know, at least when we had it, right, it also had the different rankings of canon of like, this is official movie canon, which is like the second highest to whatever George Lucas himself actually said out loud. And then you've got things like the books are kind of less valid than the TV shows, which are more valid than the comic books. And this, uh, they have all these rankings, but we could still draw from any of those settings. And they have a big record of like, here are all, the char- here are all these character names, here are all these other things that you try not to toe step with. 
And a lot of things you could just make up and then just clear it with them. And some things they'll be like, oh, don't call it that or don't use that. And those specific notes will come down. But otherwise, uh, they give us a fair amount of control. Like we got to name the characters, whatever we wanted. We got to do a lot of other fun little stuff. I mean, have, getting to make up a Star Wars character and then have it spoken in the same breath as like Han goddamn Solo was a remarkable experience for me personally, certainly. Mm. Yeah, a bunch of characters in Imperial Assault, like, you know, Gideon Argus. And like, I named that guy and I designed him and I like wrote the art brief for him. Players are now like playing with that alongside Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's awesome. It feels cool. You talked a lot about the feel of things. I mean, obviously, mechanically, when you talk about designing something, mechanics are pretty clear. There's not a fixed set of mechanics, but it's rare that someone invents a new mechanic that goes into a game. Uh, And when you look at source material, like that all exists. But when you're trying to get something amorphous, like a feel of something, are there any tricks or, or tips, things that you guys would do to like, all right, we've really, if we do this, this one you know, work around. It's really going to give it the feel of what we're looking for. Other, obviously, other than just slapping Star Wars art all over everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it re- it will depend on the IP pretty dramatically. Like, if you're playing a Game of Thrones game and everyone is friends the whole time, that's a problem. If you're, you know, playing uh, a Doom game and you spend a huge amount of time just sitting and thinking and trying, you know, to make these complex mechanical decisions, that's also a problem. It can be pretty obvious while playtesting, and that's why playtesting is so important, because you can have all these systems that work super well, but you need them to actually flow in-game when players are looking at them. Generally, you want to take in, like, blind playtesters who haven't seen the whatever your adaption is, and then see what they think. You know, fans will be a very good judge of whether something feels correctly like whatever it is that you're adapting. It's always interesting, because you always run the risk of a designer or a creator possibly missing the point of the original IP or like having someone enjoy something that isn't what other people enjoy about the IP. Like we got some response about XCOM where people who like XCOM for the tactical combat don't like the XCOM board game because it's not a tactical combat game. It's a broad cooperative strategy game. Similarly, you've got things like, you know, people love the Marvel movie adaptions of the comics, but are often less excited about the DC movie adaptions of the comics. Yeah. What happened there? Like what what changed? What are people upset about? What feels wrong, right? Oh, I'll tell you. They don't have any idea what the fuck Superman is supposed to be. What? You mean Superman doesn't torture prisoners <laughs> of war and, like, people in half with his heat vision? No. No, not so much. <laughs> is it that it doesn't feel right, Scott? Is that is that what the problem is? <laughs> it's that the whole country is going to hell in a handbasket and we need – Scott needs this – Please don't make Superman <laughs> bad. <laughs> don't take away God, my Superman. It's the one thing I should be able to count on. Do you feel like yeah. there's going to be uh, retribution, Scott, when they finally do make the good Superman movie, and then and then they try to play that card where they go, "It was all leading up to this. That was we we spent five years just making you hate <laughs> Superman, so you could really truly no, love him." They've- They've already done that, and the thing is, like, he's like chill again, right? Like in the Justice League, he's like. Trying to be the Boy Scout, like, yep, everything's great. And we're like, yep, that's Clark. Totally. He was totally like that in the last two movies. What in the last, in the Justice League movie, when they're waking him up, he's, he's, for some reason, he's got, I just woke up, so I'm evil sickness. I don't know what the fuck that was. That happens to me every morning. (laughs) Yeah. Right before the (laughs) cup of coffee, I wake up and I'm evil as shit. (laughs) 
Wonder Woman lassos him and goes, Kal-El, this isn't you. And I stood up in the theater and I was like, fuck you. You don't get to call him that. You don't know him. You don't know his first name. You have not earned this moment. No, I mean, look, I think that's a good, a really good example is that I love stories where someone goes, what if you had a Superman character, but he wasn't raised by like a good farmer from Kansas and he was a shit or he was, he pretended that he was good, but on the side, he was really a shit. And then they go, okay, we're going to do that in the form of, I know what you're saying, Corey. Now I know what is your, you're going at. It's um an analog. Yeah, there we go. Mm. Not a parody. It's an analog. So for example, Mark Wade made a book called uh, Irredeemable that was very much, what if Superman went bad and the Justice League had to decide what to do? And it was an analog to the right. Justice League. It wasn't an adaption. Mm-hmm. That's great. I want, that's, that's cool. Let's see that story. But don't, you don't mm-hmm. have to make Superman that. You know, you, you, it's then it's not a Superman story. So, I mean, we have things like Red Sun, though, where it's like, hey, what if Superman was, you know, a Soviet? And that was really good. But it was this very clear demarcation of like, this is a what if story. Like, this is not in any way true Superman. Right. It is. But at the same time, Red Sun kind of reinforced what Superman is because it pointed out that it's not his powers that make him Superman. It's that he was raised by good people that make him Superman. You know, that it, it was, it's his convictions and his morality that makes him Superman. And that story showing if he had landed in the Soviet Union, he would, he wouldn't be Superman. It reinforced what he is. So even, even Red Sun in showing a bad Superman reinforced why Superman is Superman. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's, that's what good writers do, but um, I think that it really speaks to to you and to Fantasy Flight and to your talent there that when an adaptation comes in, you guys aren't like, oh, great. Okay, I guess we're doing this now. But it's more like, how can we make this awesome? You know, how do we make this really great and fun and true to the spirit of it? You know, and... And it's not like, all right, let's get it done. But instead it's like, hey, Peter Parker wouldn't say that. He's he cracks jokes. We gotta, you know, we gotta we gotta reward that in the gameplay and we gotta make that a, a character of it because th- that's the spirit of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So um <laughs> I would be terrible at this. I would be really, really terrible at this. Because my for some reason, man, I have a really hard time getting into it. One of my one of my greatest honors was being asked to write and draw a story for the new Miss Marvel comic, uh, G Willow Wilson's Miss Marvel. Oh man. Um, she did, a, she did an annual where, uh, Miss Marvel who writes, uh, superhero fan fiction. Uh, her character does, uh, in this issue, she goes back to find that now that she's a superhero, people have write, written fan fiction about her. And so now she's on the other end of it. And, Marvel and uh, Willow said we should find artists to do these fan fiction stories. And I got to write and draw one of them. One of the greatest honors of my life. Oh, that's awesome. 
Hated doing it. Hated it. The minute, like, <laughs> loved being asked. Hated every minute of it. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. That's not true. I did have fun, but like halfway through it, I'm like, well, oh God. <laughs> it's what just, was, I don't know. What was it that was weighing on you? Was it, was it uh, the working with other characters or was it the notes that you were getting from editors? What, what was weighing on you? No, Marvel was great. They didn't give me any notes. I, I honestly, I went, uh, here's my idea. Do, should I go on with the script? And they're like, yeah. And I go, okay, here's the script. Should I go on with the pencils? They're like, this is great. Uh, you're so, thank you so much. I'm like, here are the pencils. They're like, we like it. Just finish it. <laughs> you know, just, just do the damn thing. <laughs> oh yeah. They didn't have, but you know, they didn't have to even worry about coming back and going, well, Hydra doesn't wear those costumes anymore. I'm like, Hey, am I got, do I have the right Hydra costume? And they're like, uh, let me ask. And they come back and go, not really, but because it's fan fiction, it doesn't matter. Right. So do what you want to do. So what was I, it that didn't sit well with you? I'll, I'll tell you, and this is going to, I don't know if this is going to come across, but I was sitting there working on it and going, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be building my own stuff. Like I'm, this is time I'm not working on my own stuff. I, I Yeah, but you're telling, you're telling me that if, if Marvel and G Willow asked you to do another Miss Marvel immediately six to ten page one shot immediately, you'd do it. You'd do it right away. Yeah, I would love. <laughs> now that's because I love Miss Marvel and I love Willow and their mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Now, if they asked me to to write an Avengers comic, I'd be like, I don't know, guys. I don't know. Well, I mean, I honestly, I really relate to this a lot because this is part of uh, what informed my going solo, right? Right. Like, so we've talked a lot about your time yeah. at FFG because that's where you spent the yeah. most of your design career. But but you, after, I mean, let's be honest, essentially after designing four or five of their biggest hits, you left. <laughs> Talk to us about that a little bit. <laughs> like what made you decide to cut out on your own after after having your name on these huge games. So uh, I was, you know, I was honestly, I was pretty happy at FFG, but there was a bunch of sort of internal shifting around after the Asmodee merger and things. And we got like a nice good projection of the projects coming down the pipeline. You know, they seem cool, but they didn't grab me in the way that I had the previous stuff had. Like I was kind of doing more development work, less design work on some levels. And I was just sort of like, I found I wasn't super into it as much as I was. Uh, I was working on IPs that I wasn't as crazy about things that like were cool and like totally like, you know, I'd get in there and be like, yeah, this is, this is quite cool. But I realized like, oh, this is going to be what I'm working on for the next two years. You feel like you're getting pigeonholed as the guy who's really good at doing adaptations. Yeah. And it's like, that's cool. But I don't know, like there's things that I might want to do. Tim Fowers kind of was slowly prodding me this whole time. Tim Fowers, the designer of Paperback and Burgle Bros, he's a big Kickstarter designer, had been like, you know, going indie is pretty great. Like being independent's awesome. Like he's been serving me up that Kool-Aid. <laughs> Coincidentally, around this time, uh, my partner, Liz, was applying to her PhD programs. And we had been long distance for six years. Whoa. That was longer than I would ever recommend anyone be in a long distance relationship, honestly. It's terrible. Everything kind of aligned and came together. And, you know, I felt like I was honestly not giving FFG my best at that point. We severed things on fairly good terms. Like, I'm still in touch with them. They're all very lovely. And I made the jump, which was possibly the scariest career decision 
I've ever made in my life uh, trying to make it so well. Well, and it's like, something we've talked about on the show a lot, actually, is going from a day job to being an independent creator. You've given up some of that safety net. It's fucking terrifying. Right. But you were also in a position, unlike a lot of the people who listen to this show, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that you probably wouldn't have been able to design something for yourself and release it for yourself while you were on contract at FFG, right? Anything mm-hmm. that you made probably would have been would have been theirs in some capacity. Yep. They, there's like, yeah, there's non-compete clauses and FFG also has a thing where it's like things that you work on with them, uh, they kind of have you know, priority, like kind of right of first refusal stuff. Right. It would actually become a concern for some of the designers internally of like, I have an idea. I'm not a hundred percent sure I want to pitch it because if I do pitch it at FFG, then it might be FFGs right. and they would decide what to do with it, uh, which is cool. Cause then it would actually get made, but then it might not get made in the way that they want. And some, you know, some creatives are prima donnas about this sort of thing. I don't know if you've ever encounter that of a prima donna creator <laughs> never no <laughs> doesn't happen oh yeah no oh. like and i'd never be super defensive of the things that i well, make so we- no, listen john my question is this everything you've been talking about kind of leads up to this and, and, and under the umbrella of adaptations would you ever attempt to do an adaptation as an independent so i'm currently doing exactly that Mm. and it's sort of something that i was excited about pursuing kind of independently i've got two different projects right now one of which is with muse games uh with guns of icarus Mm. and uh, i love guns of icarus as a game it was one of my favorite game experiences for a long time and i just i you know love the ships i think it's super cool and I met them at GDC and I was like, if you guys want to do like a board game thing, I, you know, let me know. And they were like, yeah, hell yeah. And so we've been cooking that for a while and it's, I think it's coming along really well. That's cool. I'm working freelance with uh, IDW who did like the Ninja Turtles board game and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we are currently working on a game uh, set with the Nicktoons called Splat Attack. Oh, nice. nice. That one, like they mention that to me and be like, yo, where do I sign up? Yeah. You know, Rugrats, Hey Arnold. Yeah, you grew up with that, didn't you? It's a dream, right? Yeah. There's another IP I'm working on, but it hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about it, but it's another dream license thing. Now, how difficult is it to navigate the legal waters of doing an adaptation as an independent? Uh, It varies dramatically. Uh, With the IDW one, I didn't have to deal with it at all. Same Mm -hmm. with like FFG, right? We had a legal team doing it. Uh, with Muse Games, it was a very kind of casual, kind of like personal delay. Like it was just me talking to their studio. And they're not like some enormous corporate entity. They're like, you know, indie devs and they put their stuff out on Kickstarter too. So we worked out a very clear deal with just sort of these very clear demarcations. But like having lawyers involved is very helpful. Uh, a lot of it is just built on trust and kind of just knowing they want me to work on a project with them and they want to be good to me. And they've been great. Yeah. It's interesting to me that though you've gone freelance to design your own games, it's almost like you still sort of have a day job because you've built such a career for yourself as this amazing uh, adapter of other media into the tabletop industry that those jobs are still kind of coming in. It's almost like you still sort of have a day job designing these, uh, you know, these adaptations, but now being free of your contract with a big company, now you can also design your own stuff uh, on your own time. Yeah. And I still do that. Like I still got independent projects cooking, but it is often, you know, it's kind of hard to help your training, right? It is so much easier for me to just look at an adaption and people trust me to do an adaption very readily. Uh, they, I have enough cloud now that I totally ha- can and have pitched projects that are not adapted from other things. Honestly, it just, it's easier to 
flow into uh, this because I'm trained to do it. Right. Well, it's a, it's a skill, right? Just like anything else. Like you've, you've gotten good at that. You've, you've mm-hmm. learned how to navigate it. And let me tell you the other fun secret about working uh, with a uh, licensed IP is that they often can provide the art for you and you don't need to go around <laughs> like commissioning artwork or writing art briefs or anything. You're just like, Hey, could I just use these assets that you guys have? And it's like, yep, here they are. And it's like, great. Uh, it's way less work on that front. And being independent a lot of the time, like say for a game like Bargain Quest on Kickstarter, right? Like, you know, with that, right? Like I worked with my sister who is a phenomenal artist and we worked together on that project and, you know, having to do all of the art ourselves and like work on that. And like, you know, it was a huge amount of work and it was like a second job, you know, doing graphic design, doing all these things, covering all these bases. It is genuinely easier to work as like, you know, not just as an independent, but sometimes just freelancing and just be like, all right, here's the design document, put the graphic design together for me and like do all that or working with a licensed IP. And they're like, here's our graphic assets. You don't need to make these up. Just use these and like just requiring a little bit of tweaking as opposed to, you know, making things from whole cloth, which is an advantage and is makes things a little easier to do. Hey, Brad. Yeah. Dude. I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> What's yeah. going on? Do you have a do you have a closer? Do are are you asking me if I have a closer? Because oh, you know that I have a closer. Oh no. Okay. Okay. Oh I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> Nope, that's how it stays. That's how it stays. <laughs> God damn it, I didn't even nope. get to the trumpet solo this time. That's well, listen, because of copyright, I don't want to get in trouble. Since it comes at the end of the show, we're going to call it the finale feud. What do you think of that? Ooh. The finale feud. Brad, that sounds like an amazing adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> so since I uh, lost last week, does that make me exempt from playing this week? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, well, yeah, technically, Scott, you are now uh, defending your crown. That's true. Ooh. All right, so. All right, forgive my rustling of papers well, as I get into minute. game show take, position. Let me here. take my headphones off, right? Yeah, I hear the winner, so you go second. Okay, so do I give multiple responses or just the one? Nope, nope, you just get, you got 30 seconds to go through five questions, so you want to uh, answer each one as quickly as possible. Now, we've taken a survey, and if you match with a survey answer that got a high number of votes, then you get a high number of points and you could be the winner. Mm-hmm. And try and get as most as popular an answer as possible. Got it. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All right. So I'm putting 30 seconds and it, these 30 seconds will start when I get to the end of the first question. Ready? Okay. Name a bad job for someone who's accident prone. Uh, construction worker. Name a garment you'd probably find in the dressing room for a pro wrestling event. Um, a mask. Name a public place where you're likely to catch a cold or flu bug. Hmm. San Diego Comic-Con. Name something you would hate to find under your bed. Oh, and that's our time. Damn. I'll I'll let you finish this last one, but... (laughs) 
the time's up. All right. Name uh, something you would hate to find under your bed. Uh, dog poop. Okay. <laughs> poop. All right. Let me, oh, let me ping, let me ping Scotty. Okay, very good. So if you'd like to turn around and, and take a look at the big board, John, you said, name a bad job for someone who's accident prone. You said construction worker. It was the number two vote getter, 20 points. Whoa. Name a garment you'd probably Ooh. find in a dressing room for a pro wrestling event. You said mask, 15 Name a public place where you're likely to catch a cold or flu bug. You said San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> that did not make our survey. <laughs> no. And name something you would hate to find under your bed. You said dog poo. And that did not make our survey. Whoa. Wow. Skunked. So, Corey, right. what does our guest have? My friend, you have 35 points. 35, 35. points. That's what Scott's that's, got to be. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. I think, uh, I Corey, it was between you and Scott last time, and it was like between like 36 to 34. It was very close. Yeah, it was very close. It was very close. Hello. I'm back. All right, Scott. Are you ready? The mm-hmm. timer will start when I get to the end of the first question. Okay. You've got 30 seconds on the board, five questions. First question is, name a bad job for someone who's accident prone. Waiter. Name a garment you'd probably find in the dressing room for a pro wrestling event. Leotard. Name a public place where you're likely to catch a cold or flu bug. Airplane. Name something you would hate to find under your bed. A monster. Name something people do while riding a roller coaster. Scream. And that's it. Ah, man. It's pretty good. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, Scott, turn around, look at the big board. Okay. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We we, we did it all up with uh, with that family food. Name a bad job for someone who's accident prone. You said waiter. Survey said... 10 points. Okay. Name a garment you'd probably find in the dressing room for a pro wrestling event. You said leotard. Seven points. Okay. What was number one there? Oh, the number one answer was tights. That's what leotards are. On the sheet, I've got got tights and leotards. Oh, my God. Different things. Singlet is singlet also separate? Um, no, the <laughs> shorts are separate. <laughs> By the way, for number one, the number one answer for his accident prone was driver. Was oh. 33 points. What? Okay. Mm. Hmm. Not doctor. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> let me, oh, surgeon, surgeon was number seven on the list at six points. Oh, God. Okay. Mm. Name a public place where you're likely to catch a cold or flu bug. I you got this said this is number one. Airplane. <laughs> you said airplane. Yes, I know that. I made a note, and it was ten points. What? Number one Not number on the one. survey was school. Number two was hospital. Wow. Airplane was number three. Okay. Name something you would hate to find under your bed. You said monster, yeah, and it was the number good. one answer. What? Worth 43 points. <laughs> 43 points? 
Whoa. And, Whoa. And, and you don't even need it, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Name something people do while riding a roller coaster. You said scream. It was the number one answer. <laughs> Survey said Whoa. 43. <laughs> wow. Damn. wow. So, Corey, what does Scott have? Bow to the king. Uh, wow. I, okay. I would like to uh, officially say that I should also have the number one answer for the wrestling thing because tights and leotards at the same thing. Well, you got 110 points. Uh, so versus John's 35. Oh, so I think no, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh we didn't tell Jonathan what happens if he loses. This is going to be uncomfortable. Uh-oh. Jonathan, okay. as as the person who did not win the game, you get to read the closing credits, and Scott, you get to decide how John reads those closing credits. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, now see the pressure's on. I didn't think I would win. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, All right, it, I got it. Oh man, you gotta, uh, got you right. gotta, you gotta read the closing right, things as if you're uh, a French waiter. Go ahead. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Have fun. Oh, oh, oh boy, this is gonna be so culturally sensitive, you guys. Get ready. <laughs> You have been listening to Surviving Creativity, the show about following your dreams, becoming your own boss, and surviving the process. Your co-hosts have been Scott Kurt. <laughs> you sound like a samurai. Hold on. Transylvanian. Corey Cassoni, business manager of Toonhound Studios. Monsieur Brad Geiger, creator of Evil Inc. and editor of webcomics.com. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Surviving Creativity is made possible by listener support at patreon.com slash surviving creativity. Ah, great job. My screen is covered in spit. I just took a drunken tour of Europe for you guys. That was amazing. Give us a plug for Bargain Quest 2. Where can people go buy Bargain Quest? You can find Bargain Quest at www.bargainquestgame.com. It is available through our website. Definitely pick it up. It's a fantastic game. It is great. Uh, And I know, John, you go to a lot of shows, right? What's your next show? Uh, Actually, my very next show is South by Southwest. We were selected for the Gamer's Voice Award. Whoa, fantastic. Yeah, I didn't even know they had a tabletop scene. I have no idea how well we're going to do out there but we were um, uh, selected among several other uh, indie game devs as uh, the gamers voice award and hopefully we can get a uh, funny trophy if we uh, <laughs> get popular votes while we're out there i've that you are the best sport we've ever had on this show yes, fantastic fantastic <laughs>